This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Well, good morning, Anchor. Oh, what a lovely welcome from everyone. Great to see you all this morning. Uh, my name is Brad Koneman. I'm one of the pastors here at Anchor. I'm part of Newtown Gospel Community. And it's a real pleasure to be with you this morning. A special welcome to Matt and Mel's family. We're really glad to have you with us this morning. We love kids. We love families here at Anchor. And it's a real joy for us to dedicate Malachi to the Lord. Now, for some of you, this might be your first time at church, um, and we're really glad to have you with us, and we hope that you leave here with a good taste in your mouth. We know that you know church isn't really on the nose in our culture, and so we hope that you leave here with, with an appreciation for how good God is and of the potential of the church to be a beautiful, loving community of grace. Well, this morning... As we're dedicating Malachi to the Lord, uh, I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about family. And I want you to think about the family that you grew up in. How many kids were in your family? What were the dynamics in your family, the relationship with your parents, the relationship with your siblings? What was that like? Was there a favourite in your family? Now you might think, Brad. Parents don't have favourite kids. Parents love their kids all the same, but we all know that's not really true, don't we? Most of us find it pretty easy to identify which of our siblings was the favourite sibling, and we know it was never the middle child, don't we? In my family, I'm the eldest of three, so it goes me and then my brother Grant and then my little sister Laura, and it's probably no surprise to anyone that my sister Laura was the favourite of our three kids. I remember being a teenager and me and my brother Grant would be doing the washing up and taking the rubbish out and kind of doing our chores and Laura would just be sitting on the couch reading her book. Like, Mom, Dad, come on, you've got to get it. I almost said my daughter's name, Eva. You've got to get Laura uh, to do her chores. And we were so furious that, ah, oh, she's getting away with murder. Favourite little sister. For my wife Catherine's family, she's the same. She's the little girl with three older brothers and she was the golden child. She could do no wrong. All she would have to do is say the word and her three older brothers would be getting in trouble. And this morning, as we begin a new series looking at the story of Jacob, we're going to see another favourite son. We're going to see that Joseph is Jacob's favourite child and his brothers hate him for it. This morning, we're going to see that favoritism breeds family dysfunction. Favoritism breeds family dysfunction. And as we begin this series in The Dreamer, I want to give a huge shout out to Katie Wong, who did the artworks that we saw in that video, the series, uh, beautiful graphic behind there, the beautiful artwork, uh, and to Sam Beckman, who put that video together. We love creatives here at Anchor. We love people using their creative gifts uh, to glorify God and to serve the church and its mission. And so I just want to give them a huge shout out um, This looks amazing. We're really looking forward to the next two months following the story of of Joseph. Uh, The story of Joseph is one of the best love stories in the Bible, isn't it? It's a story full of conflict and betrayal, murderous intentions, reversals of fortune, sexual tension, and dreams. Lots of dreams. Over the next two months, we're going to follow Joseph. 
Jason's. We're going to follow Joseph's journey from favourite son in Canaan to being sold into slavery and being a prisoner in Egypt and then his rise up to become Prime Minister of Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh himself. And through all the twists and turns, all the ups and downs of Joseph's life, we'll see that he is no victim of fate, but that he lives securely in the hand of God, who is weaving everything together, all the messy threads of his life for good and for the salvation of his people. And one of our hopes for this series is that as a church family, we'll see that we also live in the care of God's hand, that he is the grand weaver of our lives, weaving together all the messy threads to create a beautiful masterpiece of grace. One of our hopes for this series is that God will be preparing us to trust him as we go through troubles, as we go through suffering. Joseph goes through a lot of unjust suffering in his life, and yet at the end he's able to see how God was using that for his purposes. And we hope that for us too, God will be preparing us to go through troubles, trusting him, trusting in his goodness, trusting that he's working all things for the good of those who love him. And so for that, to help us do that, uh, one of our own, Brianna McLean, she's going to be writing a series of blog posts throughout this series, uh, tackling some of the really difficult questions about suffering and faith. So we're going to be rolling that out over the next two months. But as we begin this series, as we kick it off, let's pray together. Um, Let's prepare ourselves to hear from God's word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God and that you have a word for us this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes to see you, that you'd open our ears to hear you, that you'd open our hearts to receive your word and to respond in loving obedience to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin the story of Joseph, I think it's important for us to get our bearings. The story of Joseph is in the book of Genesis, The first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, where we set all the wheels in motion for the story of God. We learn who God is, that he's our loving creator, that he's made the world, he rules over the world, that he is good, that he's made humanity with a purpose as his image bearers to enjoy relationship with him, relationship with one another, and to extend God's rule throughout all the world. And yet a problem soon emerges that humanity always resists God's will and rebels against him and we see the fall of humanity into sin and all the world broken with the curse of the fall. And yet God doesn't abandon this world that he loves but he steps into the mess of our world, into the mess of our sin with a promise and he gives a promise to a man named Abraham, a promise to redeem all the world, to reverse the curse of the fall, to bless all the world through Abraham. And we've been following this story of promise over the last few years. You might remember the series, The Wanderer. We'll put the graphic up behind us. The story following Abraham, this this man who God gave a promise to, to bless him and through him to bless all the world. We then followed the story of the deceiver, Jacob, last year. Abraham's grandson, a story full of deception and sin and conflict And we saw that this promise doesn't depend on performance, on how good we are and having our lives all together, but it depends on God's grace. That he uses even this dysfunctional family, this deceptive little little kid, uh, Esau's younger deceptive brother, to extend his promise. And now we enter the story of the dreamer and a new chapter 
in this family history begins. So let's meet Joseph together in Genesis 37. I want you to keep your Bibles open, Genesis 37, and we'll be looking at Joseph and his family. So in verse 2 we read this. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now you might remember that Joseph is part of a big family. We've got Chloe Stewart in our gospel community. She's one of 10 kids. That's pretty crazy. Joseph is one of 12 brothers, let alone the sisters, and he's one of the younger ones. He was the 11th son born to Jacob. And after Jacob returned from his season in Paddan Aram, he <clears throat> returned to Canaan and settled in the land of Shechem and his family are sheep herders. All the boys are out in the field herding the sheep, um, doing their work in the land that God promised to Abraham. And it's in this context, this rural agricultural context, Joseph, a little 17-year-old boy with all his older brothers, that Joseph brings a bad report about them to his father. Now, of course, no one likes a dobber do they? You can remember back to the schoolyard or even maybe in your workplace of that person that sucks up to the teacher or sucks up to the boss and tells what's happening, um, gets everyone else in trouble. No one likes that kid. Joseph is that kid in this story. And right from the start, we see that there's division and animosity between Joseph and his brothers. What does his father think in verse 3? Now, Israel... You might remember that Jacob was also given the name Israel in the story of Jacob. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colours. So Jacob has a favourite son and that shouldn't surprise us because you might remember that Jacob had a favourite wife. Do you remember her name from the, from the deceiver? Jacob went to work for Uncle Laban and he saw Rachel and he wanted Rachel. He wanted to marry Rachel. But on their wedding night, Laban switched the sisters and Jacob ended up marrying Leah. And then he had to work another seven years to get Rachel. And as the story continues, Leah's having all these children. The maidservants, Bilhar and Zilpah, are having all these children, but Rachel is barren. Jacob's favourite wife is barren, but he loves her. And then after 10 boys are born, Rachel finally gives birth to Joseph. And you can imagine that Joseph reminds Jacob of the woman that he loves, of his mother, who died giving birth to her youngest son, Benjamin. And so because Jacob loves Rachel's son, because Jacob loves Joseph, he gives him a special coat. Now you might remember the musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I, was, I, was, I had it written down here to sing to you. You might remember Joseph walking through going, I look handsome, I look smart. Does everyone remember this? I am a walking work of art, such a dazzling coat of many colours. How I love my coat of many colours. And I chose a, an appropriate shirt today as well. It was red and yellow and green and brown and scarlet, and black, and ochre, and peach, and ruby, and olive, and violet, and fawn, and lilac, and gold, and chocolate, and mauve, and cream, and crimson, and silver, and rose, and azure, and lemon, and russet, and grey, and purple, and white, and pink, and orange, and blue. Did anyone else see this musical? 
the amazing Technicolor dream coat, a special coat from Jacob to his son. And the coat denotes not just favor, but also status. Jacob is treating Joseph, this little kid, like he's the firstborn with special privileges. And in the ancient culture, these robes, a working robe was a short sleeve robe. So that they, you know, as they're walking, working in the fields, they're not getting their, their clothes dirty, they're getting their hands dirty. But Joseph receives a long-sleeved, almost royal robe, which says this younger son doesn't have to do any work. He's being treated with extraordinary favour and privilege and entitlement by his father. You might say that Joseph has youngest child syndrome. Are there any youngest kids in the room? Oh, there's a few of us. Are you like Joseph? Now, psychologist Alfred Adler wrote about birth order in 1927. Um, and psychologists today dispute how much birth order does impact our personality. Uh, but some people think that it's legit. And it's like they kind of categorise what people are like depending on their birth order. So if you're a firstborn like me, you're meant to be reliable and conscientious and structured and cautious and an achiever. If you're a middle kid, you're meant to be a people pleaser, somewhat rebellious, have a large social circle. And if you're the youngest, like Joseph, you're meant to be creative and confident, good at problem solving, getting others to do things for you, but there are also some negative characteristics of the, of the youngest child, youngest child syndrome. They tend to be spoilt brats. Parents tend to coddle their youngest kids. And the youngest kid clamours for atten the attention of their parents. Can you see any of those characteristics in Joseph? Creative, confident, and yet coddled by his parents. Attention-seeking. How do you think his brothers respond when Joseph is given this wonderful coat of many colours? Have a look at verse 4. It's no surprise. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So Jacob favoured his youngest son Joseph. He showed it by giving him the coat and his brothers hate him. And so we see here that Favoritism breeds family dysfunction. Whenever you favour one kid over all the rest, it damages the others. It negatively impacts their mental health. It can trigger behavioural issues like attention-seeking and it can result in them resenting their parents and their siblings. Now, I realise that some of us here in this room may have experienced this in our family of origin or you may have at least felt like you are the least loved or least favoured in your family. I realise that many of us, all of us, regardless of even if we're in the best of families, carry wounds from our family of origin. We all have a measure of dysfunction in our families. And here in this dysfunctional family, uh, I think there's a word here for, especially for Matt and Mel, as they raise Oliver and Malachi, but for all of our parents, about the warnings of showing favoritism and making distinctions between our children. So now, of course, no one sets out to damage their kids. Um, we've heard Matt, Matt and Mel's beautiful prayers and hopes for Malachi this morning. No one sets out to damage their kids. But it is natural for, for us to kind of find it easier 
to like the kid that's more like us, to experience more affinity with one kid over the rest. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just how life works. But there's a problem when you openly display that by giving one kid more attention, special treatment, special gifts, while neglecting the others, even nagging them, saying, why can't you be more like, like that one? So how do you respond as a parent? What do you do when you've got multiple children? How, do you just treat them e- equally, show no preference? Well, as I was doing some reading this week, people are saying that, well, that that doesn't actually, if you just treat every kid exactly the same, that doesn't actually account for the differences that we see from from child to child. We actually need to respect and honour the diverse strengths and characteristics and interests of our children. And so to love them, well, we do need to treat our kids differently, but without giving them special treatment. So for me, with my children, I've got three kids. Eva's six, Reuben is four, Blaze is eight months. At the moment, I'm really enjoying reading Narnia with Eva, my six-year-old. We've made it through The Magician's Nephew. We're reading um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at the moment, and we're kind of up to that scene where Santa has just come, Father Christmas has come riding through the woods, and they think it's the witch, but it's actually... Her curse is breaking and the snow's beginning to melt. It's a sign that winter is broken and Christmas is coming. And we enjoy snuggling on the couch and reading this story together. And as we're reading, Reuben is throwing stuff at us. Because <laughs> Reuben doesn't want to sit down and for half an hour and read a book without any pictures. And so if I was to treat him the same as Eva and say, you've got to come and read this book with us, that's not respecting who he is. What he wants to do is he wants me to play soccer with him. Um, And so if I was to just read with Eva and not go and play soccer with Reuben, then that would be showing favouritism. But to honour their diverse interests, I'll read with Eva on the couch and then play soccer with Reuben. And that's something that I need to keep working with. I think I naturally have more affinity to Eva. I think she's more like me in terms of personality and Reuben is more like Catherine in personality. And so I think I need to you know, continue to pursue my son and explore his interests and spend time with him in a way that is respecting his uniqueness. I hope there's something for you to take home there, Matt and Mel, and other parents. Favoritism breeds family dysfunction. But this is equally true for us as the family of God. How easily it is for us to show favoritism within our church community. We're just so naturally drawn to people that are like us, that make us feel good or look good, the people whose company we enjoy, and we just kind of tend to exclude or ignore people that are different from us. I want you to flick over to James chapter 2. James, the brother of Jesus, has a word for us on this. James chapter 2. Verses 1 to 5. He says, My dear brothers, show no partiality, show no favoritism. In verse 2, if a man walks in wearing a ring and fine clothing, if he comes into your assembly, and a poor man comes in with shabby clothing, and if you pay attention to the one with the fine clothing, say, You come and sit here in this special place, while I say to the poor man, You just move out of the way, sit over there. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith 
and heirs of the kingdom. We see here that God hates favoritism. God hates us showing partiality in our church community because God is especially concerned for the poor and the marginalized, the excluded and the lonely. He's chosen them to be rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom. We see here that the offer of the gospel, the offer of God's grace is open to all people. God welcomes all people without distinction, without favoritism. We see this played out in the ministry of Jesus as he spends time with the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the social outcasts, that he eats with them and pursues them to welcome them into God's kingdom. Jesus even says this to us as we're in his teaching about the grand, grand, the grand banquet, that when we throw a dinner party, don't just invite your friends who will then invite you. Go out and invite the poor and the excluded, the lonely and the marginalised. Um, that should be a mark of our community as well. But we see here the open-armed welcome of grace in the kingdom of God, that whatever your ethnicity, whatever your sexual orientation, whatever your career, whatever your social standing, whatever your cultural background, that God's arms are wide open to all of us. That inclusivity should also mark our community of faith. And I think it does. I think generally we do a brilliant job of this here at Anchor, having a welcoming community, uh, looking out for those who are on the, on the edges of our community. See, Anchor is not a hipster church, despite any reputation that's out there. Uh, we have the poor here with us, the socially awkward, the daggy, those with mental health issues, physical disabilities. Everyone is welcome in our community. And so as we come as a church family on Sundays, we need to be coming with the mindset that, hey, I'm not coming here as a spectator to receive, but I'm coming to contribute to look out for others on the, on the margins, to love them as God has loved me, to welcome them as God has welcomed me. So even today, as we go out for morning tea after our gathering, for those who are part of the Anchor family, I want to give you this challenge, a question that you can go out to morning tea with. And the question is this, a question for God. God, who are you prompting me to talk to over morning tea? Who is the person standing by themselves on the edge that might be different from me, that I can go up to and talk to. Each of us can play our part in creating a welcoming, inclusive community by turning up on Sundays, not just thinking about ourselves, but looking out for those on the edges. And I think we do generally a brilliant job of this. So we're building a picture of Joseph here as we go through his story. He's the favourite son. He's spoilt by his parents and he's hated by his brothers. And then he has two dreams of greatness. Have a look at verse five. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream I have dreamt. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then Joseph dreamt another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I, I've dreamt another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when Joseph told it to his father and to his brothers, 
His father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamt? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Joseph has two dreams with the same meaning. They're two different contexts. One is an agricultural context in the field, binding sheaves. One is a cosmological context with the sun, the moon and the stars. But they both have the same meaning. Joseph will arise to a position of greatness in his family and his family will bow down before him. Joseph, the youngest, will rule over his family. And you can see that his family understand the meaning of this dream because they're extremely offended. Are you actually going to rule over us? Are we actually going to bow down to you, you spoiled little brat? How arrogant and obnoxious. They find this offensive that their little brother is saying he's going to rule over them. And yet these dreams are strangely prophetic for the rest of Joseph's story. These dreams hang over the rest of the narrative as we follow along over the next two months. It's kind of like the story of Harry Potter. Like right at the start, the first chapter of the Philosopher's Stone, you read about the boy who lived. This baby who seemingly has the power to vanquish the Dark Lord and break his power. And then later on in the story, you read about the prophecy that hangs over the whole thing. That this baby born in the seventh month will come one who has the power to vanquish the Dark Lord and neither shall live while the other survives. And you're like, what is going to happen? What's going to happen in this battle between this baby, the boy who lives, and the Dark Lord? And just like that dream, that prophecy hangs over that narrative, these dreams of greatness hang over as as a memory through the whole story as we follow Joseph. Through all his hardships, through all his suffering, we remember these dreams and we we remember that Joseph actually lives in the care of God's hidden hand. Now, it's interesting here that God is never mentioned in Genesis 37. It doesn't say, hey, these dreams are from God. God said to Joseph. No, he's just kind of behind the scenes working things out. We see here that God is the grand weaver. He's twisting all the messy threads together to make a masterpiece of grace. And Jacob, Joseph's father, bears it all in mind. He might be recalling the dreams that he has had when he wrestled with God at Bethel and had the dream of the ladder reaching up to heaven. He might be recalling the dreams that Abraham had, the promises that God has given to his family. And maybe Jacob is thinking, does God have plans for Joseph as well? Well, we'll see over the next two months as the story continues. As we're looking at dreams this morning, it does raise the question for us, doesn't it? Can we expect God to communicate to us in dreams and visions? Well, first, I think it's firstly really important to say that we believe in a God who speaks, don't we? He's spoken throughout history, continues to speak today. Our God is not mute. And throughout Scripture, we see that God communicated to his people through dreams and visions to Abraham, to Jacob, to Samuel, to Solomon, to the prophets, to Nebuchadnezzar, even into the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says, as as he explains what's happening on the day of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit is poured out and the, the apostles speak in tongues, he says this, In the last days, God says, 
And he's quoting the prophet Joel here. I will pour my spirit out on all people, on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In these last days, it seems, where we all have the spirit of God, it seems like there might be a place for dreams and prophecy and visions. And we see this as we hear stories from all across the Muslim world, don't we? Where there is no access to the scriptures and yet so many people are coming to faith in Jesus through dreams. They have a vision of Jesus and it leads them to faith in God. And so if Muslims are receiving dreams today that are leading them to God, why not us? Perhaps we need a new openness to how God might speak to us through dreams and visions as well. Now, I had a dream just over the last two weeks. Uh, we had a creative meeting on a Monday night at our house, uh, planning out some design things for the next quarter, and we were looking ahead for a sermon series coming up uh, on the topic of work, uh, which we're going to do in Term 4. And we were kind of wrestling with creative ideas and just hadn't really been resolved. And then I was dreaming, and I just woke up in the morning and I was like, oh, Here's the subtitle for the series. We're going to call it The Beauty and Purpose of Work. And that hadn't even been discussed in there. And then I messaged our team. And I didn't even think, oh, this is a dream from God. Like, oh, man, God's just revealed this to me. I just kind of had a dream and thought. Then as I was preparing this, I was like, oh, maybe God was in that. Maybe he was leading me to this subtitle that's going to be helpful for our series. I need to think more about what's happening psychologically in our dreaming. Like, is that just me processing what had happened and was unresolved the night before? But perhaps we do need a new openness to how God might speak to us. At the same time, there is a need for discernment. Uh, we need to be careful about ascribing divine authority to subjective revelation. And we see this all throughout the Bible. But one verse in Jeremiah chapter 23 uh, the prophet Jeremiah says that God is against those who prophesy false dreams, who lead his people away with reckless lies, yet I did not send them or appoint them. There's a need for discernment here. We need to be careful about ascribing divine authority to something that we've just dreamt. Um, and subjective revelation, dreams, vision, prophecy, it needs to be measured against God's word. Two questions to help us test it. Does it actually lead us to Jesus? If it's leading us away from Jesus, I don't think it's a dream from God. Does it lead us to Jesus? And does it agree with God's word? I think finally, if we want to hear God's voice, so many, so many of us are desperate to hear God speak. God, speak to me. God, speak to me. And yet our Bibles remain closed. If we want to hear God speak, we need to go to the one place where he has spoken most clearly, through Jesus, his son, through his living word, through the scriptures, while remaining open to how he might speak to us uh, today. Because our God is not mute. We believe in a God that speaks, that reveals himself to us. Well, as we close, we've seen that Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. He has dreams of greatness and his brothers hate him. We've seen that favoritism breeds family dysfunction. And yet in this dysfunctional family, this is the family that God has chosen to extend his blessing to all the world. And we see here that family dysfunction is no obstacle to God's redemptive work. 
God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Your mess, your dysfunction is no obstacle to God's redemptive work. God wants to come into your mess, come into your dysfunction so that you might receive his blessing and so that it might overflow and reach the ends of the earth because his promise is not based on our performance. His promise is based on grace. Now, there is another dysfunctional family who received a dream of greatness as we follow this story of promise throughout Scripture. There was a pregnancy out of wedlock, plans of a quiet divorce to avoid shame, and another Joseph receives a dream of greatness in Matthew chapter 1. An angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for what is in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph's, dr Joseph's dream finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Just as Joseph was a favorite son who endured suffering was risen up to a position of prominence in Egypt to extend God's blessing and salvation to all the world. So there was another favourite son, the son of our Father in heaven, the only begotten son who entered into our suffering, entered into our mess, endured our sin on the cross and yet was raised up to the right hand of God, was given the name above all names to rule and to reign and to extend God's blessing to the ends of the earth. In this person of Jesus, we find a remedy to family dysfunction. We find the hope of healing for wounds from our family of origin. Favoritism breeds family dysfunction, but in the story of God, family dysfunction does not have the last word. Through our mess, the grand weaver is creating a masterpiece of grace for his glory and for our good. We live securely in the hands of God and we can trust him because he is good. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you that you love, you, you love us as you find us, that your promise is not based on performance but on grace that you want to enter into our mess and dysfunction so that we might receive your blessing and so that through us you might extend your blessing to the ends of the earth. Father, we know that, uh, yeah, there is mess in our lives, that many of us have wounds from our family of origin and you want to meet us in that place of mess with grace. So, Father, we open our hands, we open our hearts to receive from you this morning. We ask that you'd take all those messy threads and weave them together for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.